All right, so just when you thought politics in Vancouver was busy enough, a new contender from an old party has entered the race. I've actually lost count of how many parties there are in Vancouver and how many people are running here. So uh, to help me navigate this, I'm joined uh, by Dan Favano, reporter, columnist with Post Media, the Vancouver Sun and Province. Hey, Dan. Hey, George. Thanks for doing this. I know you just, uh, you're running around today, but uh, tell us about this new, new, and air quotes, kid on the block, uh, Fred Harding. What's the deal with him? Well, uh, Fred Harding was... Uh a police officer with the West Vancouver police for a number of years before retiring just before the 2018 Vancouver elections. And in, in those municipal elections, uh, Fred ran with, uh, Vancouver first, which was a fairly new party at that time. And Fred ran as their mayoral candidate. And, uh, now of course he's running with the the NPA, the city's oldest and kind of best, most established party. Yes. Uh, that's really interesting. Given John Cooper left about, what, 10 days ago, 15 days ago, uh, he was their candidate. He'd been the candidate for mm-hmm. about a year and a half. He was a, he's yeah. a park board commissioner. He left in uh, not 100% explained circumstances. Um, what do you think Fred has to offer that uh, now that you know, with John gone, what's the difference uh, between Fred and John? Well, um, I mean, as, you know, as of just a few days ago or as of just very recently, it wasn't really clear if the NPA was going to have a mayoral candidate this time around. And yeah. as, as of today, of course, it seems like they appear to. They've got a council slate running and, you know, candidates running for park board and school board. So mm-hmm. now they do have a, you know, a, a leader to sort of lead them into the election running for mayor. Uh, it seems like Mr. Harding certainly was wants to focus on law and order, public safety, crime, which were things that John Cooper was talking about as well previously. But, um, you know, I I guess Mr. Harding is also going to be trying to bring his own personal experience, you know, his backstory, his career in policing. He also worked as a, he worked in policing and uh, counterterrorism back in the UK, where he's originally from, um, before coming and working in uh, policing in BC. So he's going to be, you know, at least based on what he, his comments this morning, he wants to draw on that, his own personal experience and his life story, talking about, public safety and crime in Vancouver. And he's certainly trying to uh, you know, draw on that as an issue that people care about. I'm sure you're working on a story about this, but, uh, you know, there's been stuff. This was sort of the worst kept secret for the last several days. Uh, you know, he's got some connections to mainland China. He's got uh, certainly there's been some I've seen some tweets already today regarding some things he said in the last election regarding Sochi and, and some stuff related to uh, uh, you know, uh, homophobia. It's just, you know, what is going on with all this and what, what are, you know, this seems to be <laughs> ABC and uh, team. They're all going after him hardcore on some things he said in the past. Yeah. Well, I mean, as I would imagine with any candidate, with any party, other candidates from other parties are going to try to attack him for various things. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I mean, certainly one of the things we're going to hear about, um, which I'm sure Mr. Harding is expecting to hear about is there was a video that he made four years ago talking about Soji, which of course was the, uh, I guess the DC government's uh, with sexual orientation and gender identity policy. Mm-hmm. It was a curriculum in schools. Uh, and he had a video that came out where he criticized the government for the rollout of the Soji program. I did ask, you know, Fred about this today, and I'm sure other people are going to be asking him about this throughout the course of the campaign. Um, because back when he released that video four years ago, one of their own party's ca- candidates quit over this. Uh, he was the, the candidate at that time was very upset, and he said that the party releasing this video that was critical of the government rollout of Soji was the reason that he was quitting that party. Um, you know, 
for what it's worth, when I asked Fred about this today, it you know, certainly seemed like it was a question they're expecting to get. And mm-hmm. he said he wants to be clear. He's actually not. Uh, what he says now is that he's not critical of Soji itself, and he's very supportive of LGBT issues and anything he can do to try to make schools safer and uh, a better environment for LGBT students. Um, but he was critical of the rollout of it, he was saying. This I is see. what he was saying today. Anyway, but yes, we can expect to hear certainly all kinds of um, <laughs> questions and criticisms of whatever else. Yes, of course. And if, with two months, not even two months, the election's on October 15th, which is very mm. soon. Uh, mm. Here on CKNW, I've heard Ken Sim and ABC's ads. I mean, they're on almost every half hour. Clearly, they've got some funding. Uh, advertising definitely works in an election campaign. With their candidate coming in so late, is there really any hope that the NPA has any chance of winning at this stage with a new candidate, given what happened to John, leaving? Uh, is there any trust or any, any, uh, uh, any potential for NPA to kind of surge here with Fred as the leader? Well, I mean, George, I think you would know better than I how strong is the NPA brand, how much does it count? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think, you know, it's still a well-known brand. You know, it's been around for longer than any other political party in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I think one thing, you know, you and I and maybe a handful of other people who follow this stuff really closely have maybe been talking about the election, thinking about the election for a long time now, for more than a year, for, mm-hmm. really since the last election. But I, I, I think it's possible that some of the folks running the, these campaigns, including the MPA campaign, might be, you know, banking on the fact or banking on the hope that a lot of average voters maybe are pretty tuned out during right. the summer and aren't really going to start paying attention until after Labor Day, and really in the weeks and even days leading up to October 15th. And so maybe the hope is that, you know, they've got a guy now, they can get out there in front of voters, and and that this is what's coming ahead is really going to be the crunch time. I mean, as you say, you know, John Cooper was appointed as the NPA's uh, nominee back in last April, I think. So he was the nominee for a very, very long time. Mm -hmm. But I mean, but how many, Ken Sim has been out saying he (laughs) wanted to run again for a long, long time. (laughs) Since before ABC, uh, and Kennedy Stewart, the incumbent, I, I, I think he announced his plan to run for re-election. I don't think he'd even been in the mayor's chair for a full year at that point. So everyone's been, you know, a lot of the dancing, a around. lot of the current candidates have been have been out there for a long time saying they want to run in 2022. Yeah. But um, but how much do most voters really mm. pay close attention? Uh, you know, a year, two, three years out from an election? I'm not sure. So maybe that's what the hope is. Well, and then they're all fighting, it seems, on, on the right-hand side of the, of the political spectrum. You've got, uh, for the most part, I mean, you've got Ken Sim versus uh, Colleen Harbrick versus Fred Harding now versus Mark Marison, who's a former B.C. liberal, uh, even though he's trying to push this, you know, set, a, set that aside and seems to be running more as an NDP or in the city. Um, you know, I think uh, certainly the right-hand side of that political spectrum is definitely mixed and could lead to the inevitable win of Kennedy Stewart, who has no competition on the left side of the spectrum you know i guess i don't you know i'm not sure like i i i I guess and i've heard you and others say that and i Mm -hmm. guess that's the sort of conventional wisdom is that you know there's there's a lot of people competing for that traditional kind of centrist and right of center kind of traditional npa vote and not really you know Stuart's not really facing anybody who's kind of to the left of him uh running for mayor it's not like the it's not like one city or cope or the greens or anybody is wanting is running a mayoral candidate Mm -hmm. um but that being said you know i i wonder sometimes how much how much do sort of municipal elections run on sort of a right left kind of Hmm. spectrum i guess it's it's good it's gonna be you know this election and the last election were different because it's such a 
a fractured, wide-open field. Most recent years, as you know, like it, for several elections, it was kind of a mostly a two-candidate right. race, maybe a third candidate. But now you've got you, – you could have a significant number of votes going to so many different mayoral right. candidates that the winner could win with a relatively small fraction of the overall vote, yeah, right? So for sure, even the last hard to predict. Yeah, even the last election, you looked at the numbers compared to totally. Gregor Robertson when he would win, he would have like ninety thousand votes, and I think yeah. Kirk Lapointe had eighty thousand. Yeah, and uh, this last election, uh, Kennedy Stewart won with fifty-two thousand votes, I think, and Shauna Sylvester had thirty-five thousand, and I think Ken Sim had fifty-one thousand two hundred or something. It was close, but. Uh, you know, Sean Sylvester in the last election was a real upsetter for for both. Of the, I think both the Ken Sim and Kennedy Stewart. She took votes away from both of them. So I think it's you're right. Maybe that left right could be may not be a thing. But I, I definitely think there's, you know, the people don't seem very happy with Kennedy Stewart. But are they unhappy enough? Incumbencies are incumbents are tough to beat. Generally, they'll most mm. people will give them one more chance. Yeah, and I mean, uh, one so one similarity with the last election, as we just said, is that it's a very crowded, you know, mayoral mm-hmm. race, lots of candidates, lots of people. Uh, one big difference between the, this election and the last one is that all of the incumbent council members are running again. Last time, only three out of That's 11 right. were running for re-election. The mayor didn't run for re-election. You had three councillors yeah. running for re-election. Two of them were successful. Yeah. This time around, huh. all 11 council members are running again. <laughs> You've got you've got one council running for the mayor's seat. Yeah, yeah. yeah, a lot of different parties. A lot of yeah, parties didn't, right. didn't exist a couple of years ago. But you got you got Colleen Hardwick running for the mayor's seat, so that leaves one empty council seat. And then whether you know she or Stewart or someone else potentially wins the mayor's seat. Um, so you've got kind of you got a, all the incumbents are running again. And as you say, incumbency is, is uh, you know yeah. can potentially be quite helpful. I've said this uh, several times that the very likelihood, very good likelihood that the, we might end up, with the ex- end up with the exact same council, even though different, you know, the, the parties have shifted a bit, but I don't damn well, well you're see. Gonna one, you're going to have one different seat at least. At one. the very least, there'll be one. That's right. Yeah. With uh, yeah. Colleen Hardwick running as mayor. So there's, exactly. so the mayor has a party and, and, and yeah, you could slip in. You've got somebody like uh, Bill, Bill Thielman running, you yeah. know, who's very well known. Well known guy. One yeah. guy, Andy Pierce, so he's got base on both sides of the spectrum there. So it's going to be interesting. Dad, I appreciate you joining me. Great. Well, thanks so much for having me, George. Thanks. Welcome back. George Affleck in for Jill. And today, the last of the big banks announced their uh, earnings. Bank of Montreal's uh, decline, slight decrease, they reported uh, in their third quarter. Their profits are down, you know, saying volatile markets and banks boosted up provisions, yada, yada, yada. I don't know what all this means, but I think our next guest does to help us navigate this. I'm joined by our, our own Robert Levy. Hey, Robert. Hey, George. Nice to be with you. Yeah, you too. Look, these profits are, they seem like they're coming in day after day, and they seem to be all over the map uh, on the bank side. So what's going on with the banks? They don't seem very happy, but I'm looking at some of these numbers going, why are you not happy? <laughs> because they've gone down. I think that's the simplest way to put it. Uh, everybody watches the Canadian banks very closely. Mm-hmm. For a lot of boomers, retirees, they're, they're sort of a staple in, in many of their investment portfolios because they've always been known to pay a reliable and, and steady dividend. So, so that's a positive for them. So people are very in tune with their earnings and how they perform. And they're also a bit of a bellwether for what's going on in the markets in the mm-hmm. Canadian economy, and and that's what we saw in the in the latest quarter here is, is there's a lot of economic uncertainty. Uh, but as Bima pointed out, and this was the interesting one, it, it's been a very downbeat and risk off market through 2022, mm-hmm. and it's hurt the Canadian banks' earnings. So that's another reason we saw that little bit of a decline. 
How is it a bellwether, though, if it doesn't? Because I'm looking at going, I heard a story this morning saying consumer confidence is up, but surprisingly higher than we thought it would be. So what is going on with that? Like how? And then I look at the yeah. stock market, it seems to just kind of flatline right now. It's not really going anywhere. Um, so there are so many different moving yeah. parts here. There, there are, and that, that's really attributable to the businesses that these Canadian lenders have built and how broad and diverse they are. So what's really stood out in this quarter is the fact that their capital markets divisions and where they have exposure to U.S. markets, trading, uh, companies raising money and going public and also doing debt financing, uh, that's where it really hurt their earnings. And it, it particularly hurt companies like Royal Bank of Canada and it hurt Bank of Montreal who have relatively more exposure to that area of the marketplace. Uh, so that's where a lot of their, their earnings missed and, and, and pulled their, their earnings down year over year. And, and to give you an example of that, you know, in years past, 2018, 2019, high profile IPOs, companies like Snapchat, Alibaba, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the amount of money that they were raising in terms of their IPOs on Wall Street, it was just these huge, huge numbers that were blowing out everything out of the the water. Yeah. We've now gone 109 days since the U.S. companies raised at least 25 million in a traditional IPO. Hmm. Uh, that that record was broken today or in the last couple of days, and that exceeded the 2008 financial crisis. So when companies aren't going public or looking to raise finances, yeah, that Canadian banks have exposure to that, like BMO and Royal. Right. But the other side of this is is the Canadian and domestic business is still relatively strong, and it's even stronger in, in the United States. So. Uh, banks like TD uh, and also BMO through their acquisition of uh, Bank of the West. They've got growth in the U.S., so hmm. personal lending and borrowing and commercial lending. And, and in Canada, that business was relatively stronger, too. So as you said, consumer confidence, surprisingly, this backdrop of what's going on right now with rising interest rates, how higher interest rates going to go and that level of uncertainty. The banks still fared fairly well in this quarter, but as Royal sort of pointed out, the uncertainty is, is greater than ever. It seems surprising to me, to me, though, also when you look at government, we just heard from the province has got a $1.3 billion uh, surplus uh, from last year when they were predicting a deficit in BC. We're seeing the same case in the federal government. They're not seeing these massive deficits. There was an assumption that we would see deficits after COVID and all the stuff. That, and then with interest rates going up, they have to pay their debts and it doesn't seem like the natural things that we expect to happen are happening anymore no no but that's because nobody was forecasting the level of inflation that i think we've seen in this economy and that was because of covid and and, and that was because of covid it Mm -hmm. was because of the spending that we saw more so in the united states where spending was at such a scale relative to 2008 that Many were pointing out at the time, no doubt this is going to be inflationary, but, you know, there's there's contrasts on both sides of the debate. But what that does in terms of revenues, I mean, we see inflation on that side of the equation, too. So it's not just the higher cost, but the money that's coming in is a little bit inflated in this kind of environment. And, yeah, vis-a-vis, you have these governments that are having much bigger surpluses than they had forecasted. And I think, too, because you have those nominal GDP for, GDP forecasts that are coming in a little higher than where they've been expecting them. And then you throw in, well, and that's probably related to oil and gas, where, you know, you've got a war in Ukraine, uh, gas prices skyrocketing, but that also means tax revenues up, I would imagine, for governments. Yeah, exactly right. It's been a boom for, you know, the provinces like Alberta, Saskatchewan that are the big producers. But, mm-hmm. you know, even with this inflation story, and it links back to the consumer confidence story that you opened with, how how much gasoline prices have taken out of our pocketbooks because it's so apparent mm-hmm. and we see it every week mm-hmm. and how it makes us feel in terms of our spending. 
and we have seen gas prices come down from a, from the highs, and it's just made the <laughs> consumer that much more confident it, going into the fall here. It's given him that little boost of confidence. Hmm. So it, it could be a positive for the economy, but I think it also speaks to the volatility because we saw how crazy those prices reacted to something like the war in Ukraine and you had that quick surge in oil prices and then it comes down again. So so it is a little bit, in a sense, reactionary. And then throw in real estate. I'm, I'm, I know that's not your specialty, but, you know, <laughs> we throw in real estate for good measure, certainly here in Vancouver, where, you know, they're predicting potential further 20% decline to get it back to the rates that were the prices they were before COVID. Yeah, I, I mean, it really—it's been a wild ride. Yeah, I, I think that's the point. You must hate that, your job, you know, or do you love it in this situation? I don't even know. <laughs> I love it because it's exciting because there's always <laughs> something to talk about. But you, you know, the point to make on the real estate market, especially in a lot of the markets surrounding Greater Vancouver, is prices are still above where they were, say, two years ago. So you had that rapid increase, uh, mm -hmm. but we look at what the market's giving back, and it is sort of finding a little bit of stability here, especially in this higher interest rate uh, environment. And, and you know, CIBC actually just put out a great report last week that's looking at, say, the turnover in the real estate market and people who are going to refinance their mortgages and how many people are actually going to be impacted severely by these trigger rates. I mean, it's no question we, we've never mm -hmm. had a severe downturn and impact in defaults in the Canadian real estate market in Canada in, in many de decades, you know, data longer than yeah. I've been alive. Uh, but, you know, is, is it going to hit the, the borrower on the margin or is it going to have severe consequences for the market? And, right. you know, the, the banks, economists take, the general take at this point still is it's going to hit the the borrower on the margin. It's not going to be a catastrophic yeah. event so for if, this market. If you're used to paying 2% interest rate or 3% interest rate and something goes to 7, you know, if you got a mortgage of a million dollars, say, that's, you know, that's another, was it, every every percent per 100,000 bucks is a thousand, you know, 100 bucks. So you're looking at, their, you know, thousands of dollars more per month to, to spend uh, on your mortgage. And that can kill somebody as far as their, how much money they have to yep. come in. If you're 22 years old, but, you're making $40,000 a year and you got a mortgage that you thought you could handle and suddenly it's triple what it was, that's not good. It is. You're right, George. But, you know, every everyone's personal finances is so scenario specific. Mm -hmm. And, you know, even you think of these people who are, you know, refinancing from a scenario where they were five years ago. I mean, they, they can talk to a mortgage professional and there's likely going to be a solution to withstand this little bit of pain <laughs> of higher interest rates. And that's what I mean. You yeah. know, there'll be a way to manage their way through this. And it's not going to take every single, you know, force a mass liquidation of houses or the doom and gloom scenarios that I think some people predict. We, went, we had a long ride from two 2008 to now, there was no real, usually every, I, I grew up, my dad was a realtor, so I kind of grew up in the <laughs> rich for three years, then poor for three years. It seemed like every six years, things would change. Um, you know, it seems like the we've had a long ride here since 2008 till now, till well, last we year, certainly have. till two years ago. We we have, but I remember there's been periods of this markets where it's stalled too. Yeah. I mean, if, if you know my memory serves me correctly, 2013, where everyone was calling for the floor to come out from underneath mm. it, and it just kind of treaded sideways for a while. And I think a little bit in the last five years, around 2018, you know, where it goes quiet, and then we have peak activity. So, you know, it's it's just the where we have to be cautionary of the comparables and there's no there's no doubt this market's under pressure you know you're mm -hmm. starting to see more pressure from the sales side relative and, and as inventory comes on the market uh but you know when we compare to these year ago levels where we were in a peak and you know a hypermania perhaps a year ago where everyone's taking advantage of these last of these rock bottom mortgage rates uh, you know those comparables don't don't work too well and they don't tell the full story of what's going on in the housing market so quick last bit of advice. What do you say to, to people to think about right now when they're just stay, stay calm, just stay calm. Is that the basically? 
Yeah, it, it, well, you know, the interesting thing, too, is we've been so hyper-focused on headline inflation, mm-hmm. and especially in the United States, where, you know, a lot of times with a lot of these economic indicators, they don't tell the full story or you have the volatility like like gas prices. So, yeah, short term, there's going to be a lot of noise, but, you know, focus on the long term. I think that's that's where you got to have your attention right now because it, it is going to be a little bumpy in the next couple months ahead, but long term story, I think. Good. Okay. Okay. You're bullish. All right, Rob. Thanks for joining me. Thanks, George. George off again for Jill. Uh, Vancouver police have arrested a man in his fifties. Uh, he who uh, after he allegedly assaulted three women near the Vancouver Public Library early Monday early Monday morning. Joining me now is Constable Jason Desette on this uh, from the Vancouver uh, Police Department. Hey, Jason. Hi. Good afternoon. So tell us uh, what happened here. This is not. This is getting becoming too frequent. Tell, tell us what happened. It sure is. Yesterday, after, yesterday morning, just before 8 o'clock, we had a woman, and she was walking to the 300 um, West Georgia, which is right by the library, and she spotted this guy in his 50s. He had his penis out, and he honed onto her and started walking directly after. She uh, stepped into traffic, picked it, took out her phone, called 911 right away. The guy moved on, on to somebody else while she was on the phone with 911. She was able to describe the guy and as he was assaulting a second person. Uh, is this guy known to police? I don't have any uh, background information right. on him, but he was pretty focused on what he was doing yesterday. Mm-hmm. I mean, when he went up to the third lady who did take refuge in uh, one of the buildings there uh, where there's some security guards standing, he had some drug paraphernalia, et cetera, mm-hmm. in his hands, and he made contact with her before fleeing. And this is completely random, though, for the most part. They, they, were, not ex- they were just walking down the street. Absolutely. These people were just going to work. So what is going on? Tell me why this – he was arrested. He's, he's, he's in jail right now, this guy? He is, yeah. He remains in custody. Okay. So tell me what's going on. What's going on? I mean, this is an ongoing. How do we – if you live downtown especially, which is where I live and I've got – you know, it, it, this is a real – really frustrating to keep hearing this. Yeah, it's an obvious concern for all of us, and we do ask that anyone, whether you've been a victim of a crime or you're seeing something happen, go with your gut. Please give us a call right away. You can always cancel us, um, but mm-hmm. right now, I mean, with the city's got lots of challenges that we're aware of, whether it be mental health, uh, drug addiction, um, but uh, there's no quick fix to this. The, with the, the tents being removed on the downtown east side, are you seeing that having a negative impact on other areas in the city, that these people are moving into other areas that may have been troublemakers down there? No, not necessarily. We haven't been able to uh, to link the two, at least at this point. Okay, that's good. For women who, you know, this seems to be quite a common where it's women who are the, the victims here. What do you recommend for women to do at any time of the day? This is this has happened in the daytime. You know, you have the evenings, people work late. Uh, what, what, what do you tell uh, women who are who need to get from A to B in, in what used to be a nice, safe downtown area? Well, safety is our main priority, and we encourage anyone out there to, you know, continue on with your daily activities. Be aware of your surroundings, but go with your gut, please. If you, if you feel that something's going on, use your voice. If somebody's accosting you, yell, scream, call 911. Bystanders, other citizens are going to help you. All right. I appreciate you uh, just filling us in here, uh, Jason, and uh, thanks for, for joining us. All the best. George Alpha again for Jill. I hope you're doing well in our last hour of the show. This is going fast, and I hope you're enjoying it. And stay tuned here at CKNW for our show and for Jazz's show afterwards and the news. You can just stay with us the whole time. All right, the BC NDP provincial government just released its public accounts at noon, just a, you know, about an hour, two hours ago. Uh, what are public accounts? What is this? It's basically their audited financials. It's the numbers for the province of British Columbia that compare actual money spent to the fiscal year to the plan that they had set, a, set the year before. 
four, and they've done pretty good based on the numbers. And to talk about this, I'm joined by Rob Shaw, legislative reporter for Czech TV in Victoria. Hey, Rob. Hey, how you doing? Good. So not really that surprising, but they had $9 million projection loss, and they uh, ended up making a $1.3 billion. That's a pretty good difference for them. That's that's enormous. I've never seen, I mean, the pandemic was unprecedented, but I have never seen like a, you know, 10 to $13 billion revenue turnaround like that. And, and basically what it comes down to is you have to remember this, what we're talking about here is the budget that the government came up with in kind of spring of 2021. So right. vaccines are just coming out. The world still looks like a pretty scary place. And the year of government's kind of finances closed March 31st of 2022. So we're talking about kind of peak COVID, but also when the economy roared back, when people did get vaccinated, we had mm-hmm. the summer, we had the fall. And what government did is it, it estimated for the worst case scenario. And what has come back instead is that, you know, BC had the high, one of the highest um, economic growth rates. The unemployment rate dropped. Taxes were way up. The crowns reported revenue. People were buying gas and lumber. All like basically just turn the whole thing around. And so the NDP says that we end up with a one point three billion dollar surplus instead of almost a ten billion dollar deficit, all in the the course of one of the wildest and craziest years uh, the province has ever seen. Uh, during the pandemic. Yeah, and I think a lot of that must be related to that revenue they made from oil and gas, or is it uh, is that, is this a revenue that wasn't predicted that they got? Yeah, you can break it down. So there's a $10 billion revenue swing. Mm-hmm. Six and a half of that is taxes. So we have sales okay. tax from people buying more stuff, mm-hmm. right? Uh, whether you're at home on Amazon or whatever. Um, you've got some of that from property tax, or sorry, from um, corporate taxes mm-hmm. and personal income taxes. People keep their jobs, businesses stay open. You have uh, almost $2 billion of it from natural resources. So forestry, the value of wood went up. People were doing home renovation projects. Gas and oil, the, those became more valuable, global uncertainty. Uh, and then you have a billion and a half from Crown Corporation. So ICBC saved a lot of money, and mm-hmm. people played the lotteries, I guess. Uh, the lottery corporation. Re- 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 uh, we were sitting at home playing lotteries. There. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. A lot and, of then, and then the other part of the taxes, just to go back to that issue, yeah. is housing, right? And we saw a 50-plus percent increase in the property transfer, transfer. tax over Holy what government God. estimated. Yeah. So government gets its sticky little fingers on every <laughs> property sale and uses that money. And it's an it's enormous revenue and uh, and was a huge part of this as well, because the housing market uh, was going gangbusters there during uh, during the part of COVID. But, George, this yes. is the thing. Like, this is kind of a mirage because <laughs> okay. what, where we are right now in August of 2022, mm-hmm. we have inflation up with consumer spending going mm-hmm. down. So the PST is not going to be as lucrative. We have uh, interest rates up and mm-hmm. the housing market going down. So, so the property transfer tax yep. is, is coming down. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about an enormous turnaround and a surplus for last year. And the year we're in now we may in fact be in a deficit. Who knows? We're not going to get an indication of that for a few more weeks from government. So remember, these are lagging numbers, mm-hmm. but it just tells us that, that you know things change all the time and it might not be quite as rosy as we, we think it is. So any hope that people might have with some of the taxes that NDP introduced or re- increased or you know, certainly corporate tax, uh, the chances of those being lowered because, hey, we're prosperous, we're making money uh, mm-hmm. is very unlikely because you're predicting that potentially we're going to see some deficits. 
I think we are. You look at the Ontario uh, throne speech that just came out a few weeks ago, and they said, you know what? Ottawa's turned off the taps on all its pandemic assistance. They funneled billions out to the provinces. Mm-hmm. It's time to get back to, to mm-hmm. fiscal management, mm-hmm. and that means controlling your spending. It spent enormous amounts of money during COVID. You know, the government spent $3 billion more than it thought in the, this fiscal plan we're talking about, and most of it was on health care. And as that balances back out, you end up with really tight books again. And I think that's more likely where BC's at. This, this revenue bonanza uh, isn't continuing. But uh, and that leads to, and also government spending more on things like affordability packages for people uh, during uh, the inflation. And we saw mm-hmm. the first of that yesterday was $60 million to school districts right. up with meal programs. And we're seeing more next week, the finance minister which, so there's, there's spending there. Which begs the question, uh, with a, a leadership race, in the, we're in the midst of a leadership race, it looks like EB will be the, the winner, likely. Uh, you know, is it possible they'll call an election? You know, he'll just say, you know, let's get out of the gate before people see us decline in our <laughs> revenue. And we see that one year from now, when you see a $10 billion deficit, potentially, uh, that now might be a good time to call an election for potentially spring. Yeah, there is some people speculating that. I think that it's more likely, if I was speculating, that we'd be considering uh, fall of next year if the NDP wanted to go early. And the main reason is that uh, David Eby's not running a coronation anymore. He Mm -hmm. now have two rival candidates against him, which means he's got to take the race all the way through to the December, I think, second or third actual vote. And it's too late if he wins there, which he probably will. It's too late to influence the budget, which comes out in February. It's done in December. So he's not going to table a budget that he didn't write in February mm-hmm. and then go to the polls um, with that. He wants his own financial mm-hmm. stamp on government. He wants to fund his promises. I think it's more likely that you would see him seriously consider a fall election uh, than a spring one. But, you know, when you ask him, he says, I'm not considering any early election, which is what <laughs> okay. leaders always say until they <laughs> until they spring it on you and you're like, yeah. well, hang on, wait a yeah. second. So yeah, we've heard that. We've, we've heard that song before. I know the B.C. Liberals were in, literally your your a conflict because they're talking about what they their thoughts on are on this. I'm not sure if you've got any intel on where the B.C. Liberals are, but I'm guessing they're sort of along the lines of what I'm saying is, hey, you know, this is an anomaly or uh, that this is a one year thing. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're saying, like, look, they're, the government's bringing, brought in too much taxes. They had too many fingers in your pocket, um, mm-hmm. obviously, to end up with this surplus, including, uh, and they're relying pretty heavily on the housing market uh, to fund that surplus, which is, there is a note of irony there, considering the Liberals relied on the housing market for their budgets quite a bit, too. I think it's difficult to explain to ordinary people the B.C. budget, because you think the government ends up with this $1.3 billion surplus, they could spend it on the labor uh, negotiations on the healthcare doctor crisis. Mm-hmm. But the way the BC law works is when government ends a year, March 31st of mm-hmm. a fiscal year, it ends with a surplus, boom, the money automatically disappears and it goes on to debt. So it's not money that mm-hmm. someone's sitting around a table, as the finance right. minister put it today, it's not a dump truck full of cash behind the legislature that you're like, woohoo, look at, we got extra money, let's buy something. It's gone. And so I think labor negotiations, the BCGEU, I see a lot on Twitter today saying, let's use this money to sweeten <laughs> okay. the pot. It's already, it's already gone. Yeah. You can't spend it. It's not there. And so the question, the, in, the core question government always wrestles with is it taking too much or too little from you in taxes and fees during a year because whatever it gets left with, 
disappears automatically. Hmm. And so, unlike cities where they actually do have a chance to spend their surpluses if they have them and, and put them into special projects, they don't have that requirement to to put it into uh, general uh, revenue or stick it in there. They can they can blow it, which uh, they do usually every year. <laughs> they spend that money yeah. if they can. Speaking of uh, you know the uh, with regards to um, BCG EU. Uh, obviously, the strike looks like it's over, um, but what's the status of things from your point of view in Victoria? Well, yeah, Premier John Horgan today said called this a tentative deal. I'm not quite sure that it is, but it's pretty close. It's pretty, it's pretty darn close. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so what happened to get the government back, or the BCGEU back to the table was the government came up with a better offer. We don't oh. know exactly what's in it, but it was a better offer than the 11% average three-year deal with a $2,500 bonus, which was what was on mm-hmm. the table previously and the GEU started the strike for. So something better has been, looks like it's been agreed upon. Uh, the cost, we don't know. We asked the finance minister. She said, hang tight. Uh, the government had $10 billion in kind of wiggle room in the current budget, the year we're in right now, mm-hmm. and for labor deals and other things, so it could fund some sort of deal. Uh, and this, the picket lines are coming down and the overtime ban is coming down. I think that was one of the requirements government had to sort of get this going is that the, the restaurant, hospitality, private liquors uh, sector, ca- private cannabis retailers yeah. are in a crisis because yeah. of those picket lines at the warehouses. And as they hammer out these finer details, the government wants those lines down so those businesses don't collapse. And, and obviously the GE is doing that. So I think we're pretty close to a deal. I, the other part of this, George, that fascinates me is that there were other unions more excited about getting a deal with government than the GEU. And we saw the HEU and some others that were much more receptive to government's offer. And I think there's some union pressure as well within huh. the union world to the GEU to say, you know what? This is pretty good. Like, it's, make you, it work. Yeah, and, and you don't and need the negative happened. PR because, I mean, the, the public relations nightmare if the entire cannabis industry disappears, for example, not good for the NDP base, I'm thinking. Uh, and uh, also the restaurants and, every, you know, it doesn't matter which side of the political spectrum you're on. If you piss off the, you know, the uh, restaurant industry and the, that industry, you're definitely pissing off a lot of people. So, Yeah, and I, I don't think this deal is going to be the cost of uh, living that the BCGU demanded, uh, linking their wage increases to inflation, which this year is going to be 6, 7, 8 percent. Mm-hmm. That was that's extraordinarily yeah. expensive. But I do think government gave them a better offer that will allow them to save face with their members saying, look mm-hmm. what we got. And, it, and the government will be able to spend a little bit more out of the contingency fund it has and make this happen. This will be the benchmark that the other unions, the teachers, the nurses use in their negotiations, yeah. which are kind of happening as we speak. I'll be interested to see if, because aren't politicians tied to the rate of inflation though? I know civic politicians quite often are. They are. So yep. they're going to see nice big pay raises in the new year, aren't they? Well, they are. They, they that's calculated um, for the MLA salaries, uh-huh. and uh, that happens. I'm just trying, actually, you know, I asked this question earlier, and what they got in April 1st of this year yeah. was a 2.8 percent uh, increase based on uh, the CPI, which was you know, the funny thing about inflation is you can you can fiddle with the numbers a little bit if you want you can do bc inflation you can do national inflation you can amortize it and average it over 12 months but it depends on the month you start so mlas took 2.8 percent april 1st uh and they'll get another one next april and we'll see what that one is all right rob i appreciate you joining me i know you gotta go run around there and get back to the other press conference so appreciate you uh, joining me today anytime take care